I want to give you the descriptive nature today. So we're talking part two, the obstacles. What we're going to do today is I'm going to give you the descriptive nature of the obstacles that we face in bearing fruit. So the descriptive nature or characteristics. What You might answer the question this way. What are the characteristics of the obstacle or the obstacles that we're facing in bearing fruit? I want to give you four. And these, I, I was really helped by this. Bruce Milne wrote a commentary on John's gospel. And he, he prescribed or, or he described the nature of the obstacles to following Jesus in these ways. And so I'm just using his four descriptions as the structure of my outline. We'll tackle all four of them. So your organizing structure, the descriptive nature of the obstacles to bearing fruit. The descriptive nature of the obstacles to bearing fruit. Number one, it's inevitable. Inevitable. Jesus huddled up this team of his disciples, and he tells them, if you look in verse 18, he tells them the things that he's telling them, he wants them to know. If the world hates you, know. You've got you to know this. And then he says in verse 20, remember. So he's, these are the verbs he's using. Why is he doing this? He wants them to know some things. He wants them to remember some things. And then in 16 verses 1 and 4, he said, I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. Verse 4, but I have said these things that when their hour comes, you, remember, you may remember that I told them to you. So he's huddled the disciples up. He wants them to know these things. He wants them to remember these things. He tells them the purpose for which he told them these things. Don't get caught off guard. He's saying that the obstacles that you're going to face in bearing fruit and following Jesus are inevitable. It's inevitable. That's one of the things we have to recognize from this passage of Scripture. we got to embrace the inevitable. It's inevitable. Jesus doesn't want us getting caught off guard when it gets difficult. He doesn't want us getting caught off guard when living as a Christian is hard. Jesus doesn't want any of his disciples under false expectations, under false pretensions, under false assumptions, under false illusions, under false calculations, under false projections. He's giving it to us straight. If you want to follow me, if you want to bear fruit, Jesus is saying to us, to his disciples and to us, I want to be crystal clear about what you're in for. Obstacles. Inevitable. Now, I want us to remember, in addressing the obstacles, Jesus is not offering sociological explanations for the obstacles. The, 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 the reasons that he's providing for the obstacles that every disciple will face are theological ones. He's saying that you are going, if you're a Christian, you're going to receive hatred and hostility 
from the world because theologically, as a Christian, you are now associated with Jesus. You now identify with Jesus. You have a new identity. You were playing for Team World. Now you play for Team Jesus. That's a theological truth. And because you're now associated with Jesus, the antagonism that he faced, you're going to face. It's quiet in here. Somebody's, somebody's car is going off. And it's not just that you're associated with Jesus. It's not just that your identity has changed. Now you identify with Jesus. It's that your life begins, if you're truly a Christian, your life begins to look more and more like Jesus. And that gets you sideways with the world. Because ultimately, you're, you're in Christ. You're starting to look more like Jesus. And Jesus explains that just the same way that the world treated me, it's going to treat you. Something we, you may have passed over that, that we didn't look at last week. But look at verse 25, because he says something really interesting there. He says that these obstacles that we're facing and the hatred that we're receiving, he says, but the word is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Do you know he's quoting someone there. That's a quote. He's, he's quoting probably Psalm 69, which is a psalm written by David, who was articulating in song that there was some obstacles he was facing in, in living for God, in loving God with his whole heart, whole mind, whole strength. Whatever, being a man after God's own heart was costing him something, and he addressed that cost as, as I'm being hated without cause. They don't have any reason to hate me other than I'm associated with you, God. David was lamenting that he was hated without cause. Hated not because, and it's not as if David never did anything wrong. That's not what this, this passage is saying. He's saying, though, that in this, this particular situation, he was hated not because of some wrong he had done, but simply irrational opposition for being connected to God. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that it's inevitable that if you are connected to him, you're going to face some opposition that even at times appears irrational. Listen, though. Listen. And we'll move on from this point because we hit it pretty hard last week. God's plan of redemption is not being jeopardized by the world's hostility. Who's with me? You've got to believe this. We got to believe this. We're headed somewhere in these descriptors, and we'll get to this point. But God's plan of redemption is not being jeopardized by the world's hostility. Ironically, there is John uses irony that a lot of us don't even see. It was a shallow reading of this text or study of this text, and you won't see these things. John is using irony here. He's saying that those who hate Jesus, who happen to be the religious leaders of the day, are actually fulfilling Scripture through their hatred for him. God's working all things for good. 
God's working all of this. God's in, tr- in control of everything. So in, in irony, John is helping us to see that it fulfills the scriptures that ho- those who hate Jesus, the religious leaders, are unjustified in their hatred and condemned out of their own Bibles. If you're going to preach the gospel, if you're going to make disciples, if you're going to live in a way, if you're going to live following Jesus, if you're going to live in a way that your life begins to look more and more and more like Jesus, then it it is inevitable that the antagonism that Jesus received, you will receive too. Welcome to the party. Obstacles inevitable. Being identified with Jesus makes opposition inevitable. We're going to move on. But here's the thing. We don't want the obstacles, the difficulty in following Jesus to be inevitable we would prefer it to be avoidable. I prefer avoidance to inevitability. Inevitable means there's no way around it. Like, I would like to not go through that door. But Jesus says you got to go through. If you're following me, it's inevitable. The door of inevitability is one that you must pass through. But I like the doors next to it that are labeled avoidable. I'd like to do an end around on this one. We can't. So what do we do? We've got to, one of the secrets, got to pray. Because inevitable means I, I, I don't have any other way around it, but I don't want it. I don't, I don't like it. I, it just feels hard. I feel weak. So what do we do? We should pray. We should pray that God would give us the strength to pass through the door of inevitability when we feel like in our own strength we could never pass through it. Yeah, that's what he said. You can't do anything apart from me. You can't follow Jesus apart from Jesus. <laughs> when the going gets difficult, Disciples get going, and the difficulty that we will embrace as disciples, one of the descriptive natures of, nature of it is it's inevitable. Number two, it's terrible. The obstacles are terrible. Inevitable, terrible. I'm looking at some of your faces. You're like, eh. What a downer at church today. What a downer. Inevitable troubles. Terrible troubles. Sign me up. I like troubles. Sixteen verse two. They will put you out of the synagogue, second part of verse 2. Indeed, the hour is coming whenever, when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. 
It's easy for us, I think, church, to really underestimate how difficult a time of persecution could really be. Few of us have ever faced really harsh, brutal persecution for what we believe. But that's just simply not true for many other parts of the world. It's not true through many parts of history, throughout history. If you're a Christian and you come from an Orthodox Jewish family, they might consider you a blasphemer and account you as dead for following Jesus. If you come from a strict Muslim family, you might reject, be rejected by your family and be killed, not just ostracized, not just treated as if you were dead, actually killed for following Jesus. If you come from a Hindu family, I just saw on the news this last week, there was a, a large crowd of Christians gathering and, and Hindus were knocking over a statue of Jesus that they had placed in the town. But that's, that's nothing. Getting a statue knocked over is nothing. <laughs> you could be rejected and martyred for choosing Jesus. Extremists think the country, and these are extremists, so not, don't, don't, don't make that mistake. Don't think that every Hindu that you run into thinks this way. I'm talking about extremists, thinks that the country should be purified of all non-Hindus. Christians are targeted, and social media is being used to spread hatred towards Christians. If you are from Afghanistan, and you aren't a Christian, Afghanistan just has uh, become the most persecuted country in the world. If you were a Christian in Afghanistan, you would be under extreme pressure from the Taliban to obey Islamic theocracy. If your faith was discovered, your family, your clan, your tribe, they would seek to save their honor by disowning you, by killing you. And since leaving Islam is considered insanity, many Christians are forcibly placed into psychiatric hospitals. I, I, don't, I don't know this kind. I've never experienced stuff like this. In North Korea, all Christians immediate risk of imprisonment, brutal torture, and death. In Libya, you would face immense pressure from your family to renounce your faith in Christ, and your faith in Christ, your commitment to Christ, could result in you being left job jobless, homeless, and alone. In Somalia, if you were a Christian, you would be one of a group so small that the entire number of you Christians could gather in our building for worship 
today. Whole country. And you would be a high-value target of radical Islamic groups. Open Doors World Watch List reports that over the last year, 360 million Christians lived in places where they experienced high levels of persecution and discrimination. 360 million Christians. That We're not in that category. You, you realize that, right? We're not counted in that 360 million. terrible the world still crucifies Jesus and I think that it's good for us every once in a while to allow the discomfort of the terrible description of the obstacles to sit on us for a minute Because we are so tempted to, as I said a couple weeks ago, settle down and forget what the cost of following Jesus really is for so many in the world today and throughout history. We need to hear the words of Christian leaders from persecuted countries we should read the words of persecuted Christian leaders from, who live in persecuted countries who say things that are hard for us to hear. But, but they say things like this. So much of what the West or what America or what uh, people in Chester County or what people in Del, uh, Downingtown, I forgot where I lived for a second, I almost said Delaware County, grew up there. In Downingtown... So much of what we define as Christianity, these leaders say, is so shallow. It's so selfish. It promises so much and demands so little. It offers success and personal happiness and peace of mind and material prosperity. But it hardly speaks about repentance, about self-denial about self-sacrifice, about taking up your cross, which is what Jesus said. And, and what Jesus is talking about here, a willingness to die for Jesus. Jesus has every right to ask that of us. He gave his life for us. He could ask us to die for him. And he might. There's no guarantee that he wouldn't ask that of every follower that he wouldn't require that it's unlikely for many of us following Jesus is not a game read this poem Amy Carmichael it's called hast thou no scar listen Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. 
I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent. Leaned me against a tree to die and rent. By ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar, yet as the master shall the servant be. That's a quote from this section of scripture. And pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has not wound nor scar? Sometimes I think of being on an athletic team with St. Paul. I mean Paul. We don't use that language around here often. The Apostle Paul. I imagine being on an athletic team with him, coming down into the locker room, sweaty, eye black, and we're down in the locker room, and we start to take our pads off. And Paul gets his pads off and he throws them off. And we are jaw-dropping, shocked at what we see of his back. The Bible tells us that on five different occasions, Paul received what the Jews referred to as the 40 minus 1, the 39 lashings. The 40th could kill you, so they stopped at 39. So you beat within inches of your life five times. 39 times 5, that's around 200 times the whip tore the flesh from his back, left for dead. And I'm in the locker room, and he's taking his pads off, and we all look at him and say, Dang, Paul, what happened to you? Love. Love and Jesus happened to me. I was lost, I was on my way to hell, and Jesus rescued me. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. And this is what it's cost me. How about playing with Team Jesus? Jesus is on your team. Get down into the same locker room. Take your pads off. Jesus. This big, massive scar on his side. His hands and feet are like mangled, right? When you get big nails that pass through your hands, that leaves you mangled. So his hands are mangled and his feet are mangled. And you say, dang, Jesus, what happened to you? Love. I love sinners, lost and broken 
and separated from God, and this is what it cost me. I took the punishment they deserve to rescue them from the hell they deserve. Our Savior suffered to save us. Would we accept his salvation only if it's comfortable? Only if it doesn't cost me anything. Friends, following Jesus will cost us. Hast thou no scar? You want it comfortable? You want it risk-free? You want it sacrifice-free? You want it self-denial-free? You want it settled down and forget-free? That's not following Jesus. When the going gets difficult, disciples get going after Jesus. They're not surprised by it. They're not caught off guard by it. They're looking to him for grace to endure. It's inevitable. It's it's terrible. The third category is it's respectable. It's respectable. Remember, we're talking about the nature of the obstacles that we face in bearing fruit for Jesus. First, it's inevitable. Second, we talked about it's terrible. But not all opposition is brutally terrible. Sometimes the obstacles come from sources that we might define as more respectable. Notice, again, chapter 16, verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. So I want us, I want us to notice something here. I want us to notice the close link between being put out of the synagogue, the religious system of the day, and being killed by people who think that by killing you, they're actually doing something for God. So we got to keep in mind here, we got to keep in mind that Jesus is having a very personal talk with 11 disciples. There were 12. We always hear the 12, right? He's only talking to 11 now because one of them, Judas, is betrayed. He's gone out. So now he's looking at 11 and he's telling them these things. He's looking, you got to picture this. He's looking into their eyes. He's, he's talking with them. He's telling them how hard it's going to be. And 10 of the 11 are going to suffer in the terrible category we just described. Only one, the gospel writer John, it appears, uh, was able to avoid that. Why does he get to avoid it? Remember, some of the disciples asked Jesus about that. What about him? What I do with him is is up to me. What I do with you is up to you. But he's looking into the eyes of those that are hanging on his every word. And they're going to suffer. And it's going to be terrible. But many of them are going to suffer at the hands of the respectable. The religious system. 
And this is important for us to see. We have to see this principle of respectability as distinct from the, 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 the descriptive nature of being terrible. Because not all who oppose Jesus, not all who oppose our witness, are half-crazed, depraved, wicked persecutors toting machine guns. Sometimes the obstacles we will experience look like outwardly fine people. Upright, mentally fit, emotionally fit people with religious scruples. They may even identify themselves as Christians. Because Jesus tells us that Christians will be killed by people who think they're offering service to God. D.A. Carson, author, scholar, says this. Christians have faced severe persecution performed in the name of Yahweh, in the name of Allah, in the name of Marx, and in the name of Jesus. And I want to say that this point is the hardest for me to process. This is the hardest for me to understand. Because as disciples, we might reasonably expect opposition from an atheistic world. That's easy to comprehend. What's harder to comprehend is that hostility and hatred could come from the religious establishment. Paul observes, flip over to Galatians, if you can get there quickly. If you feel like you can't get there quickly, don't worry, you can look at it later. Galatians 5, because Paul observes this same kind of thing in a group of Christians. He's writing to the church in Galatia, and he, so he's writing to Christians, He's writing to believers. He's writing to a church that he was involved in planting in Galatia. This is Christians that he's writing to. And he tells them in Galatians 5, verse 15, this. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you don't eat one another. That's not what he said. He said that you're not consumed by one another. But that's what he's saying. And he's talking to a group of Christians. He's saying, watch out. He's warning them. He's, he's, he's saying, if you keep on biting and devouring one another in the church, you've got to be warned. You've got to watch out that you'll consume one another. Now, it's important for us to say that not all disagreement in the church should be categorized as biting and devouring. That's not what I'm saying. There's people that we, that I deeply respect, who could not be a part of our church because though we are essentially reformed in our theological understanding, primarily about the process of salvation, they, even though we respect them, could not in good faith be part of Brandywine Grace Church. Why? Because we're not fully reformed in the sense that we don't practice the baptism of infants. We disagree. 
But that disagreement should not result in what Paul talks about here. It should not result in biting and devouring one another. It results in disagreement. We should love one another. But we are observing in the church, and I don't mean just Brandywine Grace, we are observing, you see this all around you. We're observing in the church today what I would describe as what, I don't, what is biting and devouring. I'm not going to use illustrations, because you, but I could give you a lot. In the church today, where people are biting and devouring one another, They're taking their disagreements to the place of biting and devouring. And that becomes an obstacle to bearing fruit. And I want us to see something. That as serious as that type of hostility can be, Jesus actually assigns honest motives to the persecution they offer. He says... They're doing it in service to God. I think there are people today doing great damage to the name, to the name of Jesus. People in the church, people that identify as Christians are doing great damage to the church, to the name of Christ, but they think they're doing right. And their actions, just as Jesus teaches, makes matters worse. Just give me a few more minutes. A teaching point. It doesn't appear that Jesus had, an, had a problem embracing those he disagreed with. We must not mistake his embracement or his embrace for his endorsement. I attended a church service once. I've attended a lot of them. That was a weird way to say it. I attended a church service. It wasn't Brandywine Grace, but I attended a church service where a cross-dressing trans man showed up. And it sent shockwaves through the lobby of the church and into the pews of the church. The leadership team assembled to try to determine how they could quickly remove him from the premises. I think they got confused over the difference between embrace and endorse. If that man were to show up to Brandywine Grace, how should he be treated? Should welcome should embrace, and I would embrace him, perhaps physically, like I do many people. And someone could snap a photo of that 
and they could put it on Instagram and caption it, local pastor endorses LGBTQ plus community. And that would be a complete misrepresentation of the situation. Let's not mistake the embrace of Jesus for the endorsement of Jesus. It's a trick of the enemy. I believe he's prowling around, as the scripture says, destroying. I believe it's a trick of the enemy to cause Christians to treat one another with hostility because they disagree. We can disagree and still walk in community. Here's the point. We don't want to do things. This is an opportunity for us to evaluate. Everybody gets evaluated here. The Word of God is evaluating all of us right now, not just some people, not just the people that disagree with you. The Word of God is evaluating all of us. And so it's an opportunity for us to ask this question. Do we do things in the service of Jesus that actually end up being in opposition to Jesus? Whew. It's hitting a little too close to home today. We don't want to do things in the name of Jesus that actually end up being in opposition to Jesus. So we should ask ourselves, am I doing anything? Am I saying anything? Am I acting anything that, would, that I'm doing, thinking I'm doing it for Jesus, but it's actually in opposition to Jesus? We would, we would mess up if we didn't ask ourselves that question. Now, I think I wanna, I'm going to move towards this last point. But sometimes, I just want to make this clear, sometimes the persecution we receive, I put quotes, the persecution that Christians receive is because of our own sin, our own behavior, our own attitudes. It has very little to do with Jesus. It has nothing to do with Jesus. It just has something to do with the way we're acting. The fact that we're committed to Christ means that we've moved from team world to team Jesus, but that should not result in like rude, obnoxious, disrespectful behavior towards the world that we were saved out of. Sometimes Christians are hated because of their own stupidity. Sometimes Christians are hated because of their own rudeness. Sometimes Christians are hated because of their own annoying personality. Sometimes Christians are hated because of their false piety. And that persecution is not necessarily a sign that you're following Jesus. It's respectable. Last one. We said it's inevitable. It's, it's what did I say? <laughs> Terrible. It's respectable. And the last one is it's endurable. Just give me a minute. Band, just band, you can come up now. This is the inspiring part of the sermon. We need this. Give me a few more minutes. We need it. Don't you need something good right now? Don't you need something to lift you up? It's endurable. The presence of obstacles should not surprise us, but actually should serve to strengthen our faith. It's through obstacles that we experience fellowship with Christ and share in his suffering. The presence of obstacles actually confirms that you belong to Jesus. Is anybody out here experiencing obstacles 
Anybody? That, that is likely in, indicative of the fact that you're trying to follow Jesus. That's a good thing. So the experience of opposition actually equals an assurance of Christ's presence. I want to show you just two things very quickly from this text because you probably passed over them. Jesus slipped something in that was hugely encouraging and I'll bet you you missed it. He said all these horrible things and then he said this, if they kept my word, they'll keep yours. He just slipped it right in there. What's he talking about? He's saying that just the preaching of the gospel, just as he plucked you out of the world, if you keep preaching the gospel, he's going to pluck other people out of the world. That there's other people that are lost right now that are going to join Team Jesus because we remain faithful. On Easter, we're going to baptize some people. The garden is going to keep bearing fruit. God remains Lord in spite of all the trouble. Amen? And then look at this. Jesus sandwiches these whole, this whole section, like 16 verses 1 through 4. Look above it. Verse 26. When the, what does it say, church? Helper comes. He keeps talking about you're going to get help. Like this is endurable. You're going to get a helper, a capital H helper, not a, not a small H helper, capital H helper. And then after verse 4, he spends another whole section talking about the Holy Spirit. So he squeezes the difficulty right in between the section on helper, helper. You got a helper. We're going to endure. We're going to make it. Why? Because we're filled with the Spirit. We're empowered by the Spirit. And when the going gets tough, disciples get going. How? I feel weak. I feel lonely. I feel ineffective. Spirit of God. The helper is going to see that you endure. I, I, last week I shared an illustration. And... And, Ben, you can start to play. Um, I shared this illustration where, where I said we, we are like this football game. And remember, I described the football game. And it looked like it was over. It looked like all was lost. And in the moment of, of what looked like defeat, we were experiencing our greatest victory. In the moment of the cross, it looks like Christianity is suffering its greatest defeat. And it's suffering. It's, it's realizing its greatest victory. When the world thinks they're, they're enjoying their greatest victory, it's actually suffering its greatest defeat. And I took the, the, the illustration a little bit further in my mind last week. I let my mind wander. I was thinking about the football game. And so it's over. Like it's over. Seven seconds left. It's over. They squib the ball. And it's like team Jesus, team Brandy and Grace is on the field. And, and the ball just comes to me. And me and my incredible athletic ability, I grab the ball. And I just start running. I start running as hard as I can. And then I just get demolished. And right before I get tackled, I look behind me and I see Shelly. Do you remember Shelly? She was singing over here last week. She's not the most athletic looking person, but I passed the ball. I just flipped it over to Shelly and Shelly caught it and she caught the ball and she just went straight ahead. She just went running as hard as she could and she got obliterated. I mean, the world just obliterated her. But right as she was getting obliterated, she just went like this, threw the ball right over her head, and then the ball, and this is in my mind's eye, J. Russ just makes this incredible one-handed grab, runs down. Satan is doing the gritty in the end zone with his tuba, and J. Russ comes crashing through the end zone and stuffs the football in Satan's tuba. It's endurable. We're going to win. The Holy Spirit's on our side. It's terrible. 
It may be respectable, it's inevitable, but it's endurable. Get up on your feet and let's sing to God.